Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. The well-known passage of the Passover, Exodus 12, we'll be reading from verses 1 to 13. Let's read God's Word. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an, for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house, taking according to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. It shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and it shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the up, upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at, at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And he shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until Till the morning it shall burn with fire, and thus shall we eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and it shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So far, the reading of God's word. Our text this evening, as we read, is Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. The well-known passage that marked the book of Exodus, the passage of the Passover. Let us read again only verses 12 and 13. Exodus chapter 12, we'll read only verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night... And will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This morning, we had the gospel made visible before our eyes as we celebrated the Lord's Supper. The gospel presented to us in such a way that we could, we could see, we could touch, we could eat and drink. That is the significance of the Lord's Supper presented to us. And if we had to trace back the significance and the origin of the Lord's Supper... We would have to go back to the Old Testament, more specifically to the Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover. The Passover is such a crucial passage that is quoted over and over, both in the Old and New Testaments. It becomes a turning point at Israel's history. It becomes a turning point in the book of Exodus, a turning point for the nation of Israel that will be celebrated over and over again 
Luke, speaking at the mountain of transfiguration, said that they were speaking of the Exodus. As Jesus was at that mountain and his face was shining, he was in the presence of Moses and Elijah, Luke says that they were speaking of the Exodus. Right before those last hours, right before his crucifixion, they were speaking of the Exodus. So there was something in the Exodus, there was something in the Old Testament Exodus that connects with the work that Jesus was doing, that the work that he was about to do in the Exodus, in that last hours, a work of redemption from bondage, just as he was about to realize on that cross, just as he was about to climax on his last hours, redemption accomplished and applied by his death and resurrection. So the book of Exodus deals with how the people departed, exited from Egypt after 430 years of life and slavery on that land. Only after fleeing from Egypt, Israel would receive a national identity. Exodus becomes God's first great redemption act in history. The gospel of the Old Testament as Exodus is also called. And we will be meditating this evening in the turning point of that history, in the event that marked the beginning of the Exodus, the Passover. We'll meditate on God's sovereignty in delivering His people through the atoning work of Christ. We will do so under three headings. First, the necessity. Second, the object. The object And thirdly, the efficacy of the atonement, under the efficacy of the Passover. And to understand the atonement, first we need to understand the two sides of it. There were two sides on that night, two sides of that event. The ones for whom the atonement is exercised, and the one who exercised the atonement. So let's consider the first group. The first group of people for whom the atonement was exercised and what made it necessary. At the end of Genesis, we had uh, Jacob and his family inhabiting Egypt. Right after Joseph had brought deliverance through the land to the land by his his acts, as he was elevated as ruler in the land, he brought deliverance to the whole people of Israel how Jacob was called at the time, only his family. And at the end of of Genesis, we have that his family stayed in Egypt even after Joseph's death. Do you remember that story, children? Do you remember that event, how Joseph brought deliverance to the land? Joseph and his family went to Egypt because there was a famine, a great hunger in the land. But what is interesting is that even when that famine, when that hunger was gone, they stayed in that land. Even when that hunger was no more, and Joseph himself was no more, they stayed on that land. And this is the context of the beginning of Exodus. The people never left Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, There arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And this marks a new page in Israel's history, as now a new king comes up who knew not Joseph, who knew not what the Lord has done to that people, who knew not the mighty works of the Lord. Now the peace between God's people and the pagans was over. The people were now in bondage. The relationship between the Egyptian rulers and the Israelite servants became more and more severe until the point that their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage, Exodus 2, 23. God heard their cry. And what happened? We also know God raised Moses, the prophet, the well-known prophet who operated mighty acts in the land. A prophet to bring deliverance for the people. But Pharaoh did not hear Moses' words. On the contrary, his heart was hardened. 
and the clash between these two seeds, the clash between God's people and that, and that evil and wicked people intensified. The clash intensified more and more, bringing great judgment upon that land. And the climax of that judgment is through the, the ten plagues that we know very well. And in chapter 12 that we just read, we have the tenth plague, the climax plague. The, pl- the tenth plague did not come without notice or without reason. But Pharaoh had plenty of warnings before. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh tried to kill the Hebrew sons. We read that in chapter 1, 22. So Pharaoh was attempting to destroy the seed of God. And as he done so, in chapter 4, God claims Israel as his people, as his firstborn. God claims Israel as his firstborn. And he warns Pharaoh that if he raises his arm against his firstborn, against God's firstborn, he will smite that land. He will smite Pharaoh's firstborn. And in verse 29 and 30 of chapter 12, we see the wages of sin. We see how the tenth plague represented a direct act of God without using another means, without using natural catastrophes or the other plagues. No, this was the Lord himself executing judgment on that land. This was the hand of God himself bringing the greatest judgment that that land had seen so far. From Pharaoh to the prisoners in the dungeon, all were touched by death. There was not a house where, there's not, where there was not one dead. Profor, a profound mourning and grieving on that land. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that grief that stroked that land on that night? And I, I, I ask you children particularly, can you imagine if that happened today, there would be no, not a house without a dead? And who would it be at your house? Perhaps yourself, or perhaps mom or dad, or one of your uncles or aunts. But there would not be a house without a dead. A serious judgment, so severe, with no precedence. Showing the seriousness, the, the gravity of sin. Showing the reality of sin. Showing the horrible face of sin and how it has to match with a great judgment. So that severe judgment was to match the severe and profound sin of that nation. Egypt represented a place of death. And the tenth plague became an illustration of that death, connecting even more this image that escaping from Egypt is escaping from death. And it was a ransoming from death. And that, was the, and that was only possible through sacrifice. That was only possible through bloodshed, as we will see later. Israel was suffering under the domain of the sinful Egyptians. That is true. However, the Israelites was not, were not a good people either. If we read the end of Genesis, if we read the warnings that the Lord gave, gave to Joseph, we know that they should have left that land. That was not the promised land. They should have left. And throughout the years, Israel became more and more secularized. And we read in Joshua chapter 24 that Israel had become almost as corrupt as their masters. Israel had, had become so corrupt, so entangled with the culture that surrounded them, that they were now worshiping idols, bowing down to graven images, to false idols. The Egyptians were bad, were evil, as we all know. But Israel at that point was not as, so good either. Therefore, we could ask, for whom? was the atonement exercised? For, for whom was that sacrifice exercised? And the answer is that the atonement was exercised for an undeserving people who had forsaken 
the Lord. At this point, up until this point, Israel was not much different than the Egyptians themselves. So why would the Lord rescue such a nation? Why would the Lord do such a mighty act? And the answer is simply God's grace alone. That is the only answer. There was nothing in Israel that would merit their rescue apart from God's grace. Therefore, first of all, atonement is a sign of God's grace. Do not spend your life trying to find a reason, trying to find a reason to deserve God's favor or God's love. You will not find any. You will not find any. Just as that people couldn't find anything to merit their rescue from the Lord. We read in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor chose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. So the Lord set His love upon you because He loved you. The Lord loved you because He loved you. Simply as that. No reason, no ground, no reason whatsoever, nothing that He could see, but simply because He loved you. Do not expect to make sense of God's love or to understand what He could have seen in you because He saw nothing. Because there was nothing. He loved us because He loved us. His grace Alone, His love is to us, in many sense, incomprehensible. Beyond our understanding, we cannot make sense. The famous words of John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? Why would the Lord do it? I have two daughters. And I do like all of you very much. And in the past days, I learned to love many of you deeply. But I, I could never give any of my daughters for anyone. I could never, never do this. But yet, that God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. And notice, we are Christians. We can say with confidence that we are Christians and we are good in some sense. So we are not like those Israelites. But at the same time, none of us would do this. None of us would give our own son for the sake of another. But Romans 5 eight says that, But God commendeth or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand His grace now? Do you understand how big and how majestic is His grace now? No reason. Nothing in us He could see. He loved us because He loved us. Nothing that we could do to deserve. We were not more or better. He simply loved us because He loved us. And that brings us to our second point, the object. The object of atonement or the object of the Passover or the object of the work of the atonement by the Lord Jesus. How did this transaction take place? How did this transaction that God, God's love was poured out while His wrath was poured out upon another? How did this transaction take place? Or by whom did this transaction happen? Who is He? who makes salvation possible. Those who rebel against God, those who live in peace under the bondage of sin, those who allied with the powers of this earth, for this group, great judgment is deserved, is reserved and deserved. Those who don't flee from the city of destruction, as we read in the Pilgrim's Progress, will face great and severe judgments will perish with the land. The world worshiped false gods as much as they did in the time of Moses. 
But all the power of Egypt failed to bring deliverance to them. All their philosophies, all their gods, all their wealth and abundance failed to bring deliverance on that day. And will fail on the last day as well. They were proving the truth that the wages of sin is death, as we read in Romans 6. And the Lamb was there to prove that the execution of judgment demands death. The Lamb, the Lamb there was a sign, a token for them to remember that the execution of judgment demands death, one way or the other. The substitutionary Lamb had to die in order to make justice for our sins. There was no other escape. There, there were going to be dead in every house in Egypt on that night. Either the death of the firstborn or the substitutionary death of the Lamb. This is a picture of the gospel. How life is only possible by the sacrifice of another the life that we can enjoy new as new creations, new creatures in Christ is only possible by the sacrifice of another, by the sacrifice of Christ. He is the object. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the object of the atonement sacrifice. He is the object of saving faith. He is who and what makes salvation possible. To all and everyone who comes to him. And the New Testament makes clear that the Passover was a type of Christ. That Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Although the Passover was and is a climatic moment in the New Testament. It was but a shadow of a greater sacrifice which would happen. A shadow, a picture, a picture lesson of a much greater, much better and perfect sacrifice which would happen. Christ's sacrifice. Him who was the lame, slain before the foundation of the world as we read in Revelation 13. The price of our redemption was Christ's sacrifice, was Jesus' sacrifice. That was the price. He is the lamb without blemish that we read. He is the lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world. The lamb without spot is him. The shadow is not a reality. So the shadow never saves. The shadow, the picture lesson that they had, that lamb, the, the physical lamb that was sacrificed, it was never that lamb that was meant to bring salvation, to bring redemption. The Lamb was not was bringing redemption, but a sign pointing forward to the perfect Lamb who would come. The Passover was a lesson in substitutionary atonement, a lesson on the work of Christ. Christ is the reality. Christ is the climactic reality. And we can ask today, are the Jews that nowadays still practice this rite that is still practiced the Passover, are they living the same Old Testament religion? Are they still living as the Old Testament Israelites? No. Of course not. The answer is no, no, not at all. They are living as pagans because it was never meant to save them. The shadow was never the reality. They were living expecting the lame which would come. They were living, sacrificing their lamb, looking forward to the day that Christ would come. So nowadays, anyone who looks anywhere apart from Christ is living as pagan. Is seeking something that would be, bring remission of sin in something that would never do it, that would never be enough. Only Christ. The shadow was never meant to bring redemption. The shadow was a lesson, a picture for that people. Only Christ. Only Christ is the reality. Only Christ can bring salvation. Only Him. The Lamb is laying before the foundation of the world. Before the eyes of God, it was never that Lamb. Before the eyes of God, it was never 
that little lamb sacrificed by many, no. Before the eyes of God, it was Christ, is slain before the foundation of the world. And what does this passage teach us about Christ and his sacrifice? As the lamb is taking place of the firstborn, it has to be a male lamb with no defect, a perfect, young, and full of life lamb. The Passover sacrifice was signifying a substitutionary life, uh, substitutionary sacrifice, substitutionary death. The lamb was taking the place of the firstborn. The lamb was pointing that that death belonged to someone else and now was falling upon him, sparing him from the judgment of the Lord, sparing him from the mighty end of Yahweh, the great I am that was upon that land. This was a sacrificial ritual. Therefore, the lamb's meat was holy as well. The way that the lamb was prepared, the lamb was burned, would point to the later burned sacrifices that would happen. The book of Leviticus exemplifies those sacrifices, especially in the Leviticus 16, the great day of atonement. So this was pointing forward to what would be the whole Levitical system for that land, they would remember that day over and over. The meat was burned. The meat was holy. There should be no remains showing how special was that meat. Christ's body was broken for us. And when we take the bread of the Lord's Supper, we remember his sacrifice as well. As we saw, as we had the gospel being made visible before our eyes in the same way, his body broken. His body broken. Just as that lame was slain and his flesh was broken, Christ's body was broken on that cross. The same way. It also shows how the shedding of blood is required. Not only killing the lamb was required, so it wasn't enough just to, to kill the lamb. Bloodshed had to take place. His blood had to be shed, had to be spread. It was seeing the blood that would cause the Lord to pass over, which brings the name of that night, verse 13. The blood had to be applied, not simply bloodshed, but the blood had to be applied on that door. The blood, the blood had to be applied as a sign to that people. Jesus died. And that is a historical fact. That even those who are not believers can agree. Jesus died, that so far is true. But simply his death is not enough. Simply his death, the historical fact that he died and has resurrected is not enough. It's not the mere fact that Jesus died that saved us. It is the application, the trust, the faith in Him. The faith in His work of redemption that saves. So dear believer, dear brother and sister, and all those who are here tonight, we need to understand that it's not simply the fact that Jesus died. We can know our Bibles very well. We can know our history very well. We can know where he died, when he died, how he died, and yet, and yet, we don't trust in him. We don't put our trust in him. We are not covered by his blood. We don't take heed of the promises. We don't, we are not under that blood. It's not the historical fact that he died and resurrected. It is the application of that truth. It is the application of that reality to our lives, to our personal lives, to each one of us that saves. That is the only hope. It's not enough to know. Even though we may know well, we need to be covered. We need to take heed of that reality. That Jesus came and died on that cross is a historical fact. And even the devils know it. They know and tremble. They know and tremble. But that is not enough. We need to take heed. We need to come to Him. 
We need to have faith in Him, to trust in Him, to be covered by the blood. We need to be filled with Him. That is the only hope. On that day, many lambs died, and yet many people died because it was not enough for the sacrifice to take place. You had to trust in Him. Furthermore, they would keep the lamb close by for four days. We read that in verses 3 and 6. And that was not, not to get to know the lamb more or to create an emotional connection with the lamb. That had a purpose. That was to make sure that that lamb was perfect. That was to make sure that that lamb was spotless without blemish. That was to make sure that that sacrifice was going to be perfect. In the same way, Jesus came and walked in this earth for 30-something years. It was not enough for him to be born and then sacrifice immediately. No. He had to be tested, to be examined, to be tempted, to be proved. He had to show before the eyes of all that he was perfect, the lamb without blemish, the perfect lamb who would be sacrificed. He had to be tempted, as we heard this morning, in the wilderness, in the same way that Israel was tempted and failed. He had to be tempted before the devil. He had to be tested before the eyes of man to show that he is the perfect lamb. He is the reality. Nothing else can compare. In some sense, we could say that he had to prove not only that he was, but that he was presenting himself as the lamb without blemish. It was not enough to be. He had to prove that he was the lamb without blemish before the eyes of all. What a tremendous reality. His life was not without significance. He was tested in the same way that Israel was, that we are, and all of us fail. But he succeeded. If Jesus had one single sin in his entire life, one single sin, one small life lie in his entire life, on that cross, he would be paying the price for his own sins and not ours. He had to be a lamb without blemish. He is the reality, nothing else. Nothing else. The promise of life is only possible because someone else is dying. The basis of salvation is outside ourselves. Outside ourselves. And nowadays people say... People repeat these jargons like, look inside yourself, or everything you need is inside, or don't look without, look within. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. This is foolishness. The only hope is not in us. It's not inside us. Don't look within yourself. Look to the Lamb. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, to His work, to what He has done. Don't seek an answer for your sins inside yourself. Look to what He has done. Look to Jesus. Look to that Lamb. On that night, Egypt was known. They were known for their power. They were known for their many gods, for their philosophies, for their wealth, abundance, military power. But on that night... Nothing else could help them. Nothing could stop the mighty hand of God's judgment upon them. And on that day, the great day of the Lord, nothing else can do as well. Nothing else apart from the Lamb, apart from Jesus Christ. So do not seek in anything else. Do not seek in anything else but Jesus on the day of the Lord, if you are not covered by the blood of Jesus, you're going to hell. 
on the day of the Lord, if the sign and seal of his sacrifice is not upon you, you are perishing. But on that day, if his sign and seal is upon you, it doesn't matter what the opposers say about you on the last day. The Lord will pass over you. Because his judgment has already, has already come upon Jesus. Look to Jesus. And in some sense, the Passover night was very simple. Without blood, death. And if with the blood, life. That night was so simple. The gospel is not complex. And to use here one of Dr. Barrett's jargons, we don't preach a maybe gospel. We don't preach and we don't teach a maybe gospel. There is assurance in the blood of Jesus. All those who were under the blood of the Lamb on that night were saved. It's not maybe. It's not just maybe. There is assurance in the blood of Jesus. And that leads us to our final point. The efficacy of the Passover or the efficacy of Christ's atoning sacrifice. We had this morning the Lord's Supper. We had the gospel being made visible before our eyes. There was not a sign and seal that maybe, just maybe, those who come to Jesus, those who are in Jesus, will be saved. There is efficacy in the blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood of Jesus. Verse 12 tells us that death was God's act of judgment, the exercise of His justice on that night. And justice had to be executed in every house. Death, either of man, of the firstborn, or of the lamb. It is the object of faith that saves. That is, it is the efficacy of the sacrifice. It is the efficacy of the substitutionary atonement. And it is the Lord who sees it. It is the Lord who sees it. It is not the strength of our faith. It is not how much we trust, how much we have faith. It is the object of it. It is the object of our faith. The blood that stands between us and the wrath of God. That is what saves. Faith is the means of salvation, not the cause. Faith is the means of salvation, not the cause. The cause is Jesus. The cause is Jesus Christ. It's true. No one will be saved apart from grace. But we don't pursue as if we need a certain level of faith. As if we need, oh, if I had more, if I could trust a little bit more, then I would be saved. It's not the level of faith. It is faith in who that saves. Christ is the object. Christ is the only object. That blood was efficient. Doesn't matter how they felt. Notice verse 13. Verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where, where ye are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. When I is my the land of Egypt. It is the Lord's work. It is His work. It, is, it doesn't matter how confident they went to bed on that night. And I can assure you that some of them went to bed scared on that night. Some of them went to bed afraid on that night. But this does, it doesn't matter how they felt. What matters was the blood on, the, on their doors. What matters is the sacrifice of the Lamb. What matters is when I see the blood, I will pass over you, says the Lord. Wow. The level, the level of faith can impact our lives. Don't misunderstand me. The level of faith can impact how we experience 
what is happening before us, the challenges that comes upon us. The level of faith certainly impacted how well some of them slept on that night. But it didn't change the result of their salvation. It didn't change the result that came upon that day. It was an act of faith to spread the blood of the Lamb on the door. And that was what matters. That was what matters. But it didn't matter how much you were sure it was going to work. It didn't matter how much confident you went to bed that night. It matters that you trust in that sacrifice alone for your salvation. And some Christians spend a lot of time nowadays seeking, feeling, as if salvation was some kind of feeling. Oh, if I could just feel it. If I could just feel. As if, if we feel, now we have it. Salvation is not a feeling. Salvation is about resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. That is the only answer, is His sacrifice. What matters is His work of redemption. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 86, is very objective in his question and answer. It says, what is faith? In Jesus Christ. What is faith? In Jesus Christ. Answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It doesn't say anything about level. It doesn't say anything about how much we need. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation. That is what faith is. As He is offered to us. In the gospel. This is plain and simple. Do you trust in Jesus alone. For your salvation. Do you trust in him alone. In his sacrifice alone. In his work of redemption alone. For your salvation. Or do you have any other hope. Apart from Jesus. Are you still hoping. In anything else but him. That is the only thing that matters. Do not spend your life seeking to feel like you love Jesus. Oh, I, I need to feel more, and, and then I know that I'll be saved. Trust in Him. It's not a maybe gospel. Trust in Him. The Passover was a celebration of God's sovereign grace. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That is assurance. It's not maybe and just maybe. No. When I see the blood, I will pass over. And notice how it is all the Lord's work. It is all the Lord. God sees it. The blood is the blood of Christ. And the Lord passes over. It's just like the famous words of Jonathan Edwards. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That is the reality. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's simple. simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. As the old hymn says. That is the reality. His work is enough. His work is enough. Had Exodus 12 come before Exodus 20. That is, had the Passover day, had the Exodus event come before the Mount Sinai. The law giving at Mount Sinai. Then we would have a religion of law. Then we would have a religion of works of the law. But it didn't. It didn't. First, the Lord delivered them. First, we have the Lord bringing mighty deliverance to His people. And then, 
It teaches them how they ought to live in obedience to Him. It's not works of law. It is works of grace. It is works of grace. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's a celebration of God's sovereign grace. The Lord prevented the destruction that came upon that land to enter the house of the Israelites. And the sacrifice is what makes is what made the difference. Those who, un, who were under a sacrifice of a lamb, or, or rather, those who are under the sacrifice of the lamb, escape judgment. That's the reality. They received not the curse, for the lamb took upon himself the curse that we deserve. The Lord passed over the judgment that we deserve, for Christ took upon himself. And that is what makes atonement perfect and complete. That is where rests the efficacy of the atonement work of Christ. Because it rests in God alone. Justice is executed by the Father. The price is paid in full by the Son. And redemption is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. It rests in God alone. And such a climatic event must have implications for the people. And with these applications that I want to conclude the sermon this evening, as we are called to remember, a call to remember, over and over we, we see this word in our text and we saw this word this morning, as we are called to remember. The Lord gave the people a sign to be remembered. Verses 1 and 2. Something that would mark the new beginning and the new identity of that people. The new identity of the people of God. This was to be a memorial feast. Something to remember. We are also called to remember. In the same way, we are called to remember even a greater event than Israel had. Notice that the, the object of saving faith cannot be different in the Old and New Testament. So the object of the Passover and the Lord's Supper today has to be the same. And what is it? It's Christ. It's Christ. The difference is simply that in the Passover they were looking forward they were looking forward for the coming Messiah. They were looking forward for the coming Redeemer that would die on that cross. And now, in the Lord's Supper, we are looking back. We are looking back saying with assurance that He has come. He has completed the work. He has done. He has paid the price. The Lamb has been slain before the eyes of all. He has paid the price. Now we have something to remember with assurance as we look back, saying that the work has been done. As Jesus said himself, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. We look back. They look forward. And now we look back to what Christ has done. Both episodes are grounded in the same event. Therefore, first of all, the Lord's Supper is a call to remember in gratitude. It's a call to remember in gratitude because it is His work. They would remember that year after year in gratitude for what the Lord has done. And so do we. We remember every Lord's Supper with gratitude, with thanksgiving to the Lord and to what He has done. So first, is a call to remember in gratitude. In the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the sign and seal of the new covenant, we remember what Christ has done. As 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four says, as we read this morning, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
We do the same thing as they did. We also have, like the Israelites, a visible remembrance, a visible thing to remember the deliverance that Christ operated for us. And that marks our new identity, our, our new identity of being united to Him, of being united to Christ. Therefore, we remember with gratitude. But second, the Lord's Supper is a call to remember in obedience. The Lord's Supper is a call to remember in obedience. The ground for the deliverance is made clear. The substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. The atonement of the Lamb. It is the blood of the Lamb that gives shelter for them and protection from the destroyer, as we read in verse 23. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the people have to answer in the obedience. Those who didn't believe, those who didn't obey, those who are not under the blood of the Lamb, Israelites or not, ended up dead on that day. And that should be repeated year after year. This celebration had to do with forsaking the life of exile, forsaking the false gods that they had, the false worship that they had, forsaking the bondage of sin in which they lived before. In the same way, we are called to do so in obedience to the Lord, to forsake the bondage of sin in which we were before, to forsake the old life, to kill the old man, as we heard. And now, to be new creatures. To be new creatures. The Lord's Supper is also a call to obedience. A, remembers of the a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. And a giving of a new identity, a new life. As verse 2 says. A beginning, not a destination. In the same way, faith begins a new life as we forsake our bondage to sin, as we begin our, pilgr our pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem. We do so as people of God who lives after the way that He has for us. And third, the Lord's Supper is a call for all generations to remember, for all generations to remember. Verses 24 to 28 says, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Forever. There is an obligation for us to instruct our children as well. To instruct our children on the meaning of this event. To instruct our children on the meaning of of the Passover lamb, of Jesus' sacrifice, of the Lord's Supper that we have. We are called to do the same thing, to instruct, to teach, to tell them to remember. The fidelity of the parents is an important way for, the, for teaching the children about, about God's grace. And we also have a sign, just as the Israelites had a sign, we also have a sign to remember, we have the Lord's Supper. Something made visible that we can touch, we can eat, we can see, we can smell, we can drink. We have something that we can teach, that we can see and teach them. Or, oh, parents, don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity that is brought to you by the Lord's Supper to teach your children of the importance of Jesus' sacrifice. Teach them the ways of the Lord, and they shall not depart when they grow old. Use this. Use this sign and seal that we have to teach them so that they shall remember all the days of their lives as well. It is not enough to teach merely the fact or the history to undermine the history, undermines the theology, and that's true. That is to undermine that Christ came, that Christ 
was real and he lived on this earth and he really died on a Roman cross of Calvary, to undermine that reality undermines the theology. But it's not enough simply to teach the history, the historicity of it. We also need to teach the importance of trust and have faith in him. Christ died. And that's a historical fact. That's a historical event. But Christ died for our sins. That is the greatest theological application that flows from it. That is what we need to teach. Teach our children not only the history of it, but the application of it. Teach them the importance of being under that blood. And finally, this is a remembrance that this is not the final destination. Verse 11. And thus shall we eat it with your loins girded, your shoes in your feet, and your staff in your hand, and they shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Although we have been delivered, we have been delivered. As believers, we can say that we have been delivered. That is complete. But this is not the final destination yet. This is not the final destination yet. Eating haste, brothers and sisters. Gird your loins. Prepare yourself for the pilgrimage that is ahead of us. This is not the final destination yet. We are marching towards the promised land. A far greater land that Israel ever had. A far greater rest than Israel ever had. We are going to the final thing, to the reality itself came down from heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Eat in haste. So in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, as Jesus said in Matthew 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, you do display, you demonstrate the Lord's death till he comes. Oh, brothers, we are called to remember till he comes. That is our call as Church of Christ, as God's people, to remember, to remember till he comes. Eating haste, brothers and sisters, for the day is coming that the Lord will come again and we will reach the final destination. The bondage of sin is no, it, it will be no more. That will put it behind us all of our struggles and fight. All of our struggles with sin will put behind us. So remember, till, the, till it comes, it in haste. Till he comes. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, we come before thee, Lord, with humble hearts, recognizing there was nothing in us that thou could love. There was nothing in us that thou could see that we would deserve such a tremendous work of redemption. Oh, Lord Jesus, we recognize that it is thy blood alone that saves. It is by thy blood alone that is hope. Nothing else can save, Lord. Oh, Lord, for those who are here tonight and have not yet tasted of this bread and drank of this cup, oh, Lord, have mercy on them. Oh, Lord, let them see that there is no other hope apart from Jesus. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. And, oh, Lord, for those who are believers in Christ, 
have professed their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Master, help us to remember every single day of our lives of the work that He has done. Help us to remember, to teach our children, to teach those around us to proclaim the gospel of Christ with faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to long for the day that we will eat new in the kingdom of heavens. Oh, Lord, help us until the day that we will see the heavens open like a scroll. We will see the heavens rolling up, the earth rolling up as a scroll, and we will see the Lamb we will see the lion of the line of Judah, and we will worship before our King and Savior forever and ever. So prepare us for that day, Lord, in remembrance of Thee. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.